What would you think of someone who thought they were the Messiah? Whether literally or just by the way they acted. I know of one minister who had a man who thought he was literally the Messiah returned to earth. But you also get people with a Messiah complex. Someone who thinks they're destined to save the world or at least to save another individual. Society at large doesn't view such people as good, uh, neither do we as Christians. There's only one Messiah, and it's not us. And as God's people, the, the furthest thing from our minds would be to, to want to claim to be the Messiah. Uh, and yet many Christians unwittingly, I think, do something similar when it comes to the story of David and Goliath. Uh, they put themselves in the Messiah's place. Uh, I, I think this is one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible, even by Christians. Here's how it's often taught in, in story Bibles, Sunday school, sermons. Uh, and it goes like this. Now, children, or now, congregation, here we have a, a young boy not much older than many of you and he faces a big challenge a great giant and how does he overcome this giant through faith in God he doesn't have the human weapons that can defeat such an enemy he doesn't have a big sword or spear all he has is is his little sling and a few small stones from the brook but how could weapons like that possibly defeat an experienced, skillful soldier? It would be like taking a pea shooter to a tank. Pathetic in itself. But just imagine his sling is a picture of faith and his stones are a picture of prayer and fellowship and so on. Uh, and the result is that these weapons, which seem so futile in the eyes of the world, are able to overcome this terrible giant. Now, none of that is untrue. But did you notice that without realising it, we make the story about us? Us fighting the giants of our lives, whether that's worries at school or an illness, maybe fears about death or, or some sin that dominates the skyline of our life. But through faith in God, we can fight these giants. What could possibly be wrong or, or lacking about an interpretation like that? Well, I think we, we should be suspicious of any approach that makes the Bible uh, about us, that, that, that never asks the question, what is God doing here? Uh, that never asks, what can we learn about God from this chapter? But particularly, uh, we should be suspicious about the common approach because of who it means that we identify ourselves with. Because almost without thinking, we identify ourselves with David. Who are we in this story? Well, we're David, obviously. But what does it say about our opinion of ourselves if we see a story full of faithless disobedient people who should have known better and we identify ourselves with the one person who trusted and obeyed 
Why don't we identify ourselves with the thousands of Israelite soldiers standing there, terrified, uh, rooted to the spot, doing nothing because of this giant? Uh, why do we assume that if we were there, we would be the, in the 0.1% of God's people rather than the 99%? And the biggest problem with that approach is that it doesn't recognise who David is. In the last chapter, David was chosen as God's anointed king. The word for anointed, uh, as I I often remind us, is where where we get the words Messiah and Christ from. So for the nation of Israel at this time, David has a unique role. He represents Jesus. Jesus. He demonstrates by his actions what the true Messiah would be like. David had also had the Holy Spirit poured out on him in a unique way like no one else had at that time. Again, we we see it in verse 13 of the previous chapter. Now we can still get help from this chapter for our struggles against sin and so on. uh, And we'll see that later on. But we're not David. We aren't the Messiah. Rather, we are like those in the Israelite army, facing a terrifying enemy and not able to do a thing about it until God's chosen but unlikely deliverer turns up to save the day. This seems an unusual or, or, or new take on David and Goliath. It's how the church has understood it in her best days. The Bible translator William Tyndale said, When David killed Goliath, glad tidings came to the Israelites that their fearful and cruel enemy was dead and they were delivered out of all danger. In the same way, the gospel is about Christ as the real heir of David. It is good news of how he has fought with sin, death and the devil and overcome them. Or a a man called uh, Johannes Bugenhagen. He was a friend of Martin Luther. He he brought the gospel to Denmark. He he says about this passage, David alone, that is Christ, saves the people. It's about one man saving all the people. So we are not David. And, And actually if we approach the passage remembering that, it becomes far richer It becomes one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we want to look at this passage under three headings, uh, which will get shorter as we go on. Uh, But seeing, firstly, man's chosen solution will let you down. Man's chosen solution will let you down. There's no doubt that this chapter has entered into our culture as a comparison between little and large. So in the FA Cup, you'll hear about the team full of plumbers and postmen going up against the Premier League millionaires. It's David v Goliath. Or if Scrimrar were to knock Rangers out of the Scottish Cup, it would be a, a giant killing Again, a phrase comes straight from this chapter. Certainly there is a very clear contrast here between David and Goliath. We're meant to see that. But there's also another comparison going on here which is often overlooked. 
And that's a comparison between David and Saul. In the last chapter, we we read in one verse about the Spirit coming on David. And in the next verse, we read about the Spirit departing from Saul. And and that comparison continues in this chapter, though it's a bit more subtle. It will be helpful if you bear in mind who Saul and David are. Saul is man's choice for king, whereas David is God's choice. Saul was chosen because he looked like the sort of man who would be good at leading the people out in battle. Whereas David was chosen because he was a man after God's own heart. And how was the people's choice working out for them? Back in chapter 8 verse 20, the the people had demanded that Samuel anoint the king for them. Why? That we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the people have specifically asked for someone who will go out before them and fight their battles. But what do we find in 1 Samuel 17? The Israelites are at war with the Philistines. They need someone to go out before them and fight this giant Goliath in a duel to the death. They need someone to go out before them and fight their battles. But what is Saul doing? The man who has been chosen for that very task. Well, verse 11, he's afraid and greatly dismayed. He is helpless when it comes to the crunch. And not only should Saul have been the one to fight Goliath because it was his job description. He should also have been fighting Goliath even if he wasn't king because he was the tallest person in the army. We're told back in chapter 9 that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. Yes, he's still going to be no match for Goliath. But physically speaking, Saul is the obvious candidate. And so in verse 57, when David stands before Saul with Goliath's head in his hands, it's an indictment on Saul. Saul should have been the one holding the head. As well as that, what tribe was Saul from? He was from the tribe of Benjamin. What were they known for? Well, according to the book of Judges, the Benjaminites were famous for having a crack squad of 700 men who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And yet the one who does all the damage with a sling in this chapter is David. Someone said that he out-Benjamined the Benjaminite. It would be like someone from Scotland going to a boomerang throwing competition in Australia and winning. It'd be pretty embarrassing for the locals, or the ones who'd grown up doing it. So in short, we have the man chosen as king by the people for such an occasion as this, who looks for all the world like he's the right man for the job, but he's powerless. When the crisis comes, the people's choice lets them down. And it will be the same for you. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, when the crisis comes, that thing will let you down. It will fail you. When you think about the day of judgment, is your trust in the life that you've led, the good that you've done? 
If you're leaning on your good works, they will let you down. The ladder that you have constructed to help you climb up to heaven will collapse beneath you. It can't bear the weight that you're putting on it. For a while, Saul looked like a good choice. And so do many of the things that we trust in. But when the crisis comes, their powerlessness becomes clear. Another big contrast between Saul and David is what they think is important as they go out to face Goliath. Saul's big concern, what's, what's that? Where it's that David would be clothed in the right armour. Saul would think nothing of going into battle without the Lord's blessing, but he won't let David go into battle without trying on his armour. And the point about the armour and why David doesn't wear it, it's not because David is a a 10-year-old boy and the army is too big for him. David's probably in his late teens at this point. But but as he said, he hasn't tested the armour. He's not not used to it. Uh, But all Saul is concerned about is that David be wearing the right armour. Saul has become so secular in his thinking that the only question that matters is, do we have the right equipment? We can easily fall into that way of thinking as churches. We can base our confidence about reaching the community around us on the gifts we have as a congregation. Or we can base our pessimism about reaching the community around us on our lack of gifts, on our lack of numbers, lack of resources. But either way, it's a a secular way of thinking about the work of the church. But David approaches the showdown completely differently from everyone else. He's the first person in the whole chapter to mention God. Verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David has a completely different way of looking at the world than Saul. Saul sees a giant. And thinks we can do nothing. David sees someone who is defying the living God. And says we cannot do nothing. For Saul the big concern is survival. So he does nothing. Just as you have some churches. Whose only ambition seems to be to die more slowly. And so they do nothing. For Saul the big concern is survival. So he does nothing. For David the big concern is God's glory. So he goes out and he fights. And we all face the challenge to do the thing that makes sense, humanly speaking, but but which leaves faith in God at the door. Seeking first the kingdom of God makes, makes no sense from a human point of view. Going to church is one thing, but, but making God the number one priority in our lives... Choosing to miss out on other things, to to be at church or to spend time with God's people. Devoting one whole day a week to God. It's all madness from the world's point of view. But one day the world's perspective will be exposed as the foolishness it has always been. So Saul is compared to David in this chapter. And he comes out badly. Notice as well how long this standoff has been going on for. 40 days. It's one of those, those numbers that, that keeps coming up in the Bible. 
40 represents a time of testing. During those 40 days, Saul and God's people had been tested and found wanting. Just as the nation had been when they sent spies into the promised land for 40 days and brought back reports of giants. Rather than trust God, the people feared the giants and ended up being sentenced to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Here, Saul is the people's choice, but he fails the test. He makes the same mistakes that God's people should have learnt from in the past. And it's not even just the people's choice who disappoints when it comes to the crunch. It's also Samuel's choice. Remember what Samuel thought when God sent him to anoint one of Jesse's sons. He saw Eliab and he thought, surely this is God's anointed. But Eliab's true colours come through here. He doesn't recognise David as God's anointed, even though he'd seen Samuel anoint him. Instead, he's envious and opposes the Lord's true anointed king. And so David is opposed by his own brothers, just as Jesus would be a thousand years later. What a reminder not to trust in our wisdom, but to look to God. So firstly, man's chosen solution will let you down. Secondly, the true Messiah wins the victory on behalf of his people. The true Messiah wins the victory on behalf of his people. Think of two boxers fighting in the Olympic boxing final. All their nation's hopes of a medal are tied up with them. If one of them lands a knockout punch, it won't just mean victory for him. It will mean victory for, uh, for the crowd, for, for millions of those watching at home on TV. And that's the situation as David steps out to faith, face Goliath. Victory for one of them will mean victory for their nation. Those watching on can't influence the result. Whether it's those up on the hill in the ranks of the army or, or those back at home like Jesse anxiously waiting to hear what happens. What's at stake as David goes out to meet Goliath? It isn't just David's life, but it's the lives of all his people. He stands there on their behalf. In fact, we could say that what's at stake here is salvation. David uses the word saves in verse 47. It's a word that Jesus' name comes from. Sure, in this case, it's a physical salvation rather than a spiritual salvation at stake. But it's also a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. Because at the cross, everything depended on Jesus. He went into battle on our behalf. There was nothing we could do to influence the result. Our salvation is totally bound up with what Jesus does. If Jesus defeats Satan, sin and death at the cross, then we get the victory. Our eternal salvation is secure. But if Jesus loses, we lose. Our spiritual salvation depends on what Jesus did at the cross. Just as the Israelites' physical salvation depends on what David does as he meets Goliath. Jesus and David were, were both as well fighting to free their people from slavery. Goliath says in verse 9, 
If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. David was fighting to save his people from slavery. Just as Jesus would go to the cross to save us from slavery to Satan and to sin. So what we're being given here is a foretaste of what Jesus will do. One man earning a great victory for his people. Not only are we meant to see David as representing Jesus. I think we're also meant to see Goliath as representing the devil. For a start, Goliath opposes and mocks God's anointed. And that is satanic. It is devilish. But there's more than that. When verse 5 says that Goliath wore a coat of mail, it's literally saying he wore an armour of scales. He is scaly just like a snake. The same word is used in Ezekiel 29 to describe the scales of the great dragon who represents Satan. And there's also the, the context. When does this contest between David and Goliath occur? It happens just after David has been anointed by the Spirit. He's anointed by the Spirit and then immediately goes out into the wilderness to face the one representing the serpent. Does that ring any bells? Well, what happened after Jesus was anointed by the Spirit? He went out into the wilderness to face the serpent. He went out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And if Goliath is being pictured as Satan here, it gives added significance to how David brings him down. Because it's with a head wound. Do you remember the old prophecy about what the Messiah would do to the serpent? He shall bruise your head. And that's exactly what happens here. David takes a, a stone which one commentator suggests would have been about the size of a tennis ball. Slings it round and round and launches it at Goliath. The world record for the fastest tennis serve is 163 miles an hour. This stone probably wasn't travelling that much slower. And it sinks into Goliath's forehead. And he falls face down just as his god Dagon had done back in chapter 5. Goliath falls face down before the Lord's anointed. Just as Dagon, that image, that false god had fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. And so we have something here far more significant than tips about how to fight the giants in our lives. We have a foretaste of the victory of the ultimate Messiah on the cross where he would bruise the forehead of the great serpent when Jesus would strike the devil with a death blow meaning that his final doom is a formality as it is when David takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. In a sense we are living in, in that, that moment uh, when the, the giant ha, has been struck, has been fallen face down, but, but, but his head has not yet been cut off. He hasn't yet finally been finished off. Yes, if we're believers, we will die physically if the Lord doesn't return first. But, but our resurrection is certain. Once the, the giant is lying at David's feet, his end is certain. 
And those of God's people watching on that day, those who knew their Bibles and trusted in God's promise, surely they couldn't help but take comfort when they saw the Lord's anointed going out and inflicting a deadly head wound on a serpent-like giant. The true Messiah wins the victory on behalf of his people. Thirdly, finally, and just really in conclusion, we have the results of the Messiah's victory. The results of the Messiah's victory. I began by by criticising a fairly common interpretation of this passage that it's about each of us fighting our giants. And yet, this passage, when properly understood, it does help us in our struggles, but from a slightly different perspective. This passage isn't about all the the individual Israelites fighting their giants, because there's only one giant, uh, and that giant represents Satan's sin and death, and he is killed by the Lord's anointed. But look at the results of David's victory. David had asked the question, verse 26, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? That's what would happen if Goliath was killed. And that is what does happen. David's victory takes away the reproach, the disgrace and the shame of God's people. David's victory isn't about him gaining a name for himself, though though that happens. It's about what David does for God's people. It takes away their shame. And so does Jesus' victory. He takes away the shame we have because of our sin. He takes away our reproach, our disgrace. Maybe you, you thought today, could you even walk into church because of the the shame that you're feeling jesus died that that shame could be taken away our past present and future sins are dealt with so we can live without shame and knowing that jesus has already won the victory changes how we fight sin now think of the israelites while goliath is still alive they don't have the power to fight they're terrified But once the giant is killed, everything changes. They they pursue their enemies. They run after them. And it's the same with sin and our battle against it. Before we become Christians, before we hear the good news of what Jesus has done for us, we're powerless to fight against sin. The devil laughs at us. We're easy targets. But after we become Christians, knowing what Jesus has done, That gives us the motivation we need to charge down the remaining sin in our lives. And so the message of this chapter for us as Christians isn't so much believe and you'll be able to gain the victory over your enemies. It's it's more that because of Jesus we already have the victory over them. And what we're doing as we fight sin is, is just working out the consequences of that victory we already have. Our enemy has lost the great battle and soon the whole war will be over. So when you hear the story of David and Goliath, don't think of yourself as David. There's only one Messiah and it's not you or me. Think of yourself as a member of the Israelite army with absolutely no hope until God's chosen deliverer turns up and defeats your great enemy 
on your behalf. And in the strength of his victory, you can go out and fight. Just like David inflicted a death blow on Goliath, Jesus did the same to Satan on the cross. Just as David used Goliath's own weapon against him, so Jesus used death, Satan's own weapon against him. So our final victory is certain. And safe in that knowledge, we can go out and fight this week. Amen. Well, we close by singing of the ultimate victory of God's Messiah against mocking enemies from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the first four verses, starting on page 2. Listen to the derision of the nations in verse 2 there at the top of page 3, aimed at the Father and the Son. Let us break their chains, let us cast their cords away. But what is the result? Verse 3, God laughs. He who sits in heaven laughs. Why? Verse 4, because he has set his king to reign. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the big question this morning is, are you on his side or are you fighting against him? Because there is no middle ground. Psalm 2, 1-4, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs>